today we're going to be in the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John. Uh, if you remember, we are in a section that is unique to John within the Gospels. It is not found in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Uh, and it starts off at the wedding in Cana, and it will end uh, back in Cana. And so he has left the Galilee area. He's gone down to Jerusalem. He had to flip over some tables and start whipping some pit people. And then he starts making his way back up to Cana. And we will see that today he takes a very unique route to do that, a route that many Jews would not have taken in that day. And so today we will be in John chapter 4 in verses 1 through 45 in a message that I've entitled, Lost at the Bottom of a Well. Lost at the Bottom of a Well. If I were to say the name of Jessica McClure to you, how many individuals would remember that, that name? A few, a few of you were a little older, I can tell, uh, from some of the ones that didn't raise their hand. But back in 1987, in October of 1987, an 18-month-old girl named Jessica McClure was in the backyard of her aunt's home in Midland, Texas, and she fell through an abandoned well pipe, and she became lodged 22 feet below the surface of the ground in an 8-inch well pipe. You imagine that. 18-month-old girl, 22 feet below the, the surface of the ground, lodged in an 8-inch well pipe. It took 54 hours, but they finally were able to free young Jessica McClure from there. And apart from uh, a couple of surgeries that she had to have and the loss of a toe due to some gangrene because her leg was uh, elevated and lodged above her, her head and lost circulation and a scar on her forehead, she was absolutely perfectly fine. The first thing that they wanted to do, though, once they assessed the situation, is they dug a parallel shaft next to this well shaft to get somebody down alongside of her so she could hear their voice and he could begin to start to calm her and instruct her and walk her through what was happening. He didn't want, they didn't want her to be alone. They didn't want her to be down there by themselves. They, they wanted her to know that they were actively working to rescue her from the position that she was in. And eventually, through that uh, uh, parallel uh, uh, hole that they dug, they were able, through water jetting, to, to cut through the rock to get to her and to bring her up to the surface. Today, we are going to encounter a woman who is not physically down at the bottom of a well, but yet she is just as stuck, she is just as lost, she is just as in need of rescuing as Jessica McClure was in 1987. Now, as we get ready to read this text together, there, there is a portion of Scripture that sits in between John chapter 3 where Jesus uh, is talking to Nicodemus at night and the passage of Scripture that we have. Cody pa uh, uh, preached from that passage of Scripture last week, but it's important to see the parallels between the encounter of Nicodemus and the encounter with the Samaritan woman. 
And so we see in chapter 3 that Jesus met at night with the scholar of Jerusalem. And then in our passage of scripture today, Jesus will meet at noon with the Samaritan woman uh, who in many regards was counted to be um, a promiscuous woman uh, who had been ostracized and had been outcast. Let's read God's word together and then unpack it to see what God has for us today in relation of an event that took place over 2,000 years ago. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Now, I don't know about you, but there are three words just in that one little section right there that blesses me so much. So Jesus, wearied. Anybody wearied in here today? Anybody feel wearied in here today? You, you, are, you are wearied, you, you, you feel tired, you feel exhausted. Maybe it's physically, maybe it's emotionally, maybe it's spiritually. Jesus was weary. The, 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 the same uh, uh, one who can speak things into existence is the one who is above all things, that holds all things together. We see the humanity of Christ that he was wearied. He knows everything it is that we are going through. He knows everything it is that we are facing. And so, therefore, we can turn to him with any and everything that is going on in our lives. Verse 7 goes on to say, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and it is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he 
will tell us all things. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and have not And you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there for two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of you, of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And may God bless the reading of his word. So what we have in the passage of scripture that that we have read is we see Jesus leaving Jerusalem and he's going back up to the region of Galilee. Now, in that day, Jews would not typically go through Samaria. There was a great hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans, and it had been something that had really been going on ever since 721 B.C., So this is something that had been going on for for 700 plus years, this animosity, and had been building, and had been building, and had been building. In fact, it actually went went further than 721 B.C. 721 B.C. is when uh, the northern kingdom, which had split from the southern kingdom, the 12 tribes originally worshiping together, the northern kingdom split because they did not recognize the rightful heir of Solomon's son to be king. And so they set up a kingdom for themselves. So ten tribes came together to be known as Israel or the northern kingdom. And then you had the two southern tribes of, of Judah or southern Israel. And in 721 B.C., the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom and took many of those from the northern kingdom into captivity and resettled the area with other individuals, other ethnicities uh, that they had conquered, and those that had remained started to intermarry. And so when the Jews returned back to rebuild in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, the wall and the temple, the Samaritans wanted to join in and wanted to help, but the Jews would not let them help because some of them had intermarried with Gentiles, and so they looked at the Samaritans, they looked at them. These individuals who had broken away from their forefathers, they looked at them with disdain. In 450 BC, the Samaritans built a temple on top of Mount Gerizim. They had built this temple on top of Mount Gerizim, and then in 112 BC, in the intertestamental period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, 
a man named John Hyrcanius, a leader of um, uh, the Jews in the Maccabean, uh, the Maccabean uh, re- rebellion and the lineage of, of those uh, individuals that led that, re- that rebellion, they went up on top of Mount Gerizim and they destroyed the temple in 112 B.C. And so the animosity has been building and it has been building uh, up to the point in 6 B.C. In 6 B.C., uh, we see that the, the Samaritans actually snuck in a few of them penetrated and infiltrated the Temple Mount and on the eve of Passover spread dead men's bones upon the Temple complex, uh, making the Temple complex unclean to where the Jews were not able to have Passover that year. So this is the, 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 the atmosphere that, that Jesus is entering into that this has taken place, that they, they despise each other. The Jews look down on the Samaritans, and the Samaritans look down on the Jews. And yet we read here in verse, uh, verse 4 of chapter 4 that it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria, that he had to pass through Samaria. It didn't say that he wanted to pass through Samaria, although I think that is a reality and a truth that says that he had to pass through Samaria. In Greek, the, the, what is translated had to in this verse is the same Greek word that is translated must in John 3, 14, when Jesus says, so too like Moses lifting up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, so too must or have to the Son of Man be lifted up. In other words, what we see in this text is the same motive of Jesus going to the cross of Calvary is the same motive that he is going through Samaria because he has an interaction that he wants to engage in with a woman who will be there at that well at that time because the motive is his mission. The the motive is to obey and to honor God in all things. And so as Christ Jesus makes this journey, we see first and foremost the intentionality of Jesus. We see his intentionality. We see that, that, that he has his face set on aspect. His ministry is not just, just haphazardly happening, that he sets his face to obey God's will. And as God impressed through the Holy Spirit upon his heart and with the foreknowledge that he has to exercise in this instance, he is making a path directly through Galilee, through an area that most of the Jews would have gone around and would have taken them twice as long. So the direct path was about 70 miles. It was about a two and a half day journey. And Jesus sets out upon that because Jesus goes to places others won't in order to engage someone others have shunned and outcast and overlooked in order to restore what others think to be irredeemable. And that is a a good word for each and every one of us to live with an intentionality because there are individuals that oftentimes in our lives and in the world around us, we put in the same category that the Jews had put the Samaritans. There are oftentimes there are individuals that we put in the same category that the Samaritans had put the Samaritan woman that he was going to meet at this well. But Jesus did not avoid her. Jesus intentionally went. It wasn't just, well, if I happen upon somebody today, 
Oh, Lord, give me somebody to share the gospel with. Listen, you don't have to pray that prayer. You just have to open your eyes. At your workplaces, at the ball fields, in your neighborhood, there are all kinds of individuals that need to hear the gospel, and we need an intentionality like Jesus to go to them, not to avoid, not to go around, not to take the more convenient path in the sense that we can avoid those that God has called us to share the good news of Christ to. We see that Jesus comes, and he comes to this well to encounter this woman. Luke 15, 4 through 7 says this, What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. There's an intentionality of Jesus because Jesus pursues the lost. This is who Jesus is and this is what Jesus does. Jesus pursues the lost. There's an intentionality, there's a focus, there's a a movement of Jesus to those that have been ostracized and outcast. It's a movement to those individuals that are stuck at the bottom of a well, and they need somebody to come alongside of them. They need somebody to rescue them. They need somebody to redeem them. They need somebody to heal them and to give them their purpose and their meaning that they were created with. They need Jesus to come and to save them. You see the intentionality of Jesus in verses 4 through through 6. We read in Philippians 2, 4 through 8, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Do you see the intentionality that we read here in Philippians chapter 2? The intentionality that doesn't just speak of Jesus going through Samaria to get to this woman at the well, but Jesus leaving the very throne room of heaven to go to the cross of Calvary for you and for me. And Jesus doesn't come and those that come to him in in, in faith, it's not like he's reluctantly extending salvation to us. It's not a reluctance. It's not that he just is thinking, oh, man, he's trying to hide from us, and we found him. And now because we found him, he owes us salvation, and he reluctantly extends it to us. No, he intentionally went to the cross desiring that you would repent of your sins and place your faith and trust in him, for he pursues the lost. Now, in the largest section of this passage of Scripture, Verses 7 through 26, we see the interaction with the Samaritan woman. So we see the intentionality of Jesus. And in the bulk of this passage of Scripture, we see the interaction with the Samaritan woman. And so we see in verses 7 through 26, we see that in the sixth hour, that is is a a Jewish counting of, of noon. So at noon, here comes this woman to get water from this well. 
Now, that is a very unique time for a woman to go by herself to get water from the well. Most of the times, this was a task that was done in conjunction with other women in the village because it provided a time of social gathering. It also provided a time for women to help other women because those jars of water would be heavy, and so they needed help to get them back and balanced on their heads so that they could make their journey back into the town, back into the village. And they would come in the cool of the day because ain't nobody got time for that, right? But yet she comes at noon. She comes in the heat of the day, and she comes by herself. And in the passage of Scripture, as we see Jesus start to interact with her, we understand why it is that she comes by herself. Because in that day and in that time, she would be a complete outcast of that village. For she had been married five times and was now living with a man who was not her husband. And so judgment would have been passed on this woman Whispers would have been taking place at the well if she would have come to get water when everybody else came. Everybody would have been talking about her. I'm sure she had encountered these very things at other times within her life. And so she wanted to avoid it. So she came by herself to get this water. And yet Jesus has strategically placed himself in her path. Listen, Jesus places himself strategically in each and every one of our paths. Each and every one of us have to answer the question, who do we say that Jesus is? Every one of us can either drink from one or two wells. We can either drink from the well of the word or we can drink from the well of the world. And only one of them brings eternal life. And so Jesus, encountering this woman, says to her, Give me a drink. And she responds, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? He is breaking down cultural boundaries, not just ethnically, but also gender. She points out the fact that not only am I a Samaritan, but I am a woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Now, he doesn't have anything to gather water from. So the only thing that he could drink from is the vessel that she brought. And there was a saying amongst the Jews that a piece of bread given by a Samaritan is more unclean than swine's flesh. That you would take nothing from a Samaritan. And anybody who is a holy man surely would not put anything that a Samaritan had to their lips because then it would defile them. Now, here's what we see. Jesus has encountered a religious man who knows all of the law named Nicodemus in John chapter 3. And now he's encountering this woman who, according to Jewish standards, is completely uh, isolated from God, is apart from God. They have absolutely no hope and that they will eventually stand before God in judgment and they will be cast away from God forever because of who they are. And what Jesus told Nicodemus is your religion and your self-righteousness do not give you a monopoly on God and what he will say to the Samaritan woman is your sin does not exclude you from the grace of God because we all need Jesus each and every one of us need Jesus and Jeremiah 2 13 says this for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. 
There's so many people that are trying to drink from cisterns that they had created for themselves, and they are broken, and they hold no water. They hold no ability to satisfy. They hold no ability to change. They hold no ability to bring peace. They hold no ability to bring joy. But what Jesus will say to this woman is that there is a living water that when you drink from it, it becomes a spring of living water bubbling up to eternal life within those that have drunk from that well. Now we see in verse 12 of our text, notice her verbiage as she encounters Jesus and his response that if, he, if she knew who he was, that she would ask for a drink because it wouldn't be the vessel put to his lips to make him unclean. It would be her drinking from the living water that would make her clean. And we see in verse 12, she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? So the Samaritans had a view that they were the true people of God and the Jews were the false people of God. Where the Jews had a view they were the people of God and the Samaritans were the false people of God. The Samaritans had a messianic expectation, a very high messianic expectation, but theirs was not that he would be a priest and a ruler, but he would be more of a teacher and a prophet like Moses. So they are waiting for the Messiah who, after 6,000 years uh, from creation, would come and live on the earth for 110 years, teach them everything it is that they needed to know, and then there would come the judgment where the righteous would go into everlasting life, and those that uh, were unrighteous would be cast into eternal damnation for. Uh, ever and ever and ever. And so notice how she is laying claim to be the true people of God. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself. And what Jesus is going to confront in her is exactly what he confronted in Nicodemus, that you cannot find salvation in an identity in any other place than Christ. It's not in who your mama was or who your daddy was. It's not in how often you attend church. It's not how religious you are. It's, it's not that you were born in America. It, it has nothing to do with any of those things. The only way to found salvation is in Christ Jesus, for he is the one that offers living water. In fact, it's masterful what Jesus does and how he sets himself up to present this living water. He puts himself in a position of need physically to her, saying, I must rely upon you for this thirst to be quenched. And as she starts to recognize that you have nothing to go and retrieve this so-called living water that you're talking about, you need me and you need this water jar to draw out this water to quench your physical thirst. He is going to masterfully, as we would expect with Christ, use that in a way to flip around the fact that she has nothing to quench her spiritual thirst and that she needs him to do it for her. And he positions himself in this way, and he speaks of this living water. Now, they would have understood living water to be spring water or creek water or river water. It was water that moved. It was water that flowed. Well water or water in cisterns, water in ponds. 
that, that, that was not viewed as living water because it stood still. It was stagnant. And what Christ is saying is, come to me and drink from this living water. Your life no longer has to be stagnant. Your life no longer has to be stuck at the bottom of this well because this woman was coming to this well because that is the way that she had learned to cope with life. She had learned to, to just exist. She knew the other women wouldn't be at the well at that time. And so to avoid all of the whispers, to avoid all of the looks, to avoid all of the judgment, she would live in isolation and she would come to the well when nobody else was there. And she was trying to find her peace and her joy by going to this well each and every day at a time nobody else was there and Jesus comes to confront her to say you no longer have to live a life of stagnance. There is living water that can move you and change you. In fact, Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, we read this. Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What we see in this section of scripture is this reality. The thirst of our souls is not quenched at a place but by a person. So many individuals are, you're trying to get to a place trying to get up to a place in your marriage. You're trying to get a, into a place of a parenting. You're trying to get into a, a place of life. And you think, if I can just get to this, this place in life, if, if, if I can just hold on enough and I can get to this place of life, then, then I'll have joy and I'll have peace. And then you get to that place in life and you find there is no joy and there is no peace because all of your effort and all of your energy and all of your time of trying to position your life to get to a a certain place is not where joy and peace is to be found. It's to be found in a person. See, it doesn't matter. When you have Christ, it doesn't matter where you are in life. It doesn't matter your circumstance or your situation because he will not leave you nor forsake you. It's not a matter of you in your own power and your own strength getting to a certain place in life. It is a matter of you relying and resting in a person, and that person is Jesus because he is the one who gives the living water. And so as he has this interaction with her, as he talks with her and visits with her about this living water, we see that he confronts this reality that she is looking for her joy and her peace in these various cisterns that are broken. And so he responds to her and he says, now go call your husband and come here. Now this isn't a rude in fact, he's bestowing dignity upon her throughout this whole conversation just by having this conversation with her. But what he's trying to do is he's trying to expose the wound of her life so that she would see her inability to fix it as she's tried to year after year after year after year, husband after husband after husband. He wants to expose that wound not so that he can make the wound worse, so that she would see her inability to heal the wound and his ability to heal the wound. He wants to expose the wounds in our life. He wants to bring conviction upon our hearts, not so that he can press us down underneath his thumb, but so that he can lift us up with his nail-pierced hands as we place our faith and trust in 
to him. And so we see that she responds, I have no husband. Now, I used to read that with an idea that she was being defiant. I have no husband. I kind of viewed the hand on the hip, fellas, you know what I'm talking about? When you done messed up and the hand on the hip, the legs cocked out in front a little bit and the eyes are squinted a little bit. Maybe it's just me. Maybe it's just me. I used to read that as a response from, G, from, from her to Jesus in defiance, but I don't think that's the tone she said that in. I think she said it in a tone of brokenness and shame. I think she didn't say it with her jaw locked and her eyes squinting, piercing through Jesus. I think she said it with her shoulders slumped and her eyes on the ground as she shuffled her feet. I have no husband. And Jesus does not condemn, does he? Jesus, having exposed the wound, our Savior who will not bend, uh, who will not bruise a bent reed, he speaks to her with love and compassion. And many commentaries say that her response to that is to deflect and to go into this discourse on doctrine to get away from this wound that has been exposed, but I don't think that's true either. I think now that her wound's exposed, she really wants to know. Our people say you have to worship here on Mount Gerizim. Your people say you have to go to Jerusalem. You've exposed my wound. Now where do I go to find its healing? Where do I go? Do I go there? Do I go here? And what Jesus responds with in verse 23 is that there is an hour coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. In other words, it's not about going to a place. It's about coming to a person. That is where you will find your, your, your healing. That is where you will find your redemption. That is where you will find your salvation. And then she slips back into the Samaritan understanding of who the Messiah would be. And she says, I know that the Messiah is coming. He's going to be like a, a, a prophet and a teacher like Moses. When he comes, he will tell us all things. In other words, nobody really knows what the truth is. But when the Messiah comes, he'll point us to the truth. He'll teach us the truth. We'll understand where it is that we are supposed to go. We'll understand what we're supposed to do with our wounds and our brokenness and our sin. When he comes, we will understand. And Jesus replies to her I who speak to you am he. I'm the one that you are waiting on. I'm the one that you are looking for. While you are trapped down at the bottom of that well of shame and of guilt, I am the one who has left heaven. I am the one who has come alongside of you. I am the one that has placed myself in the same position that you are so that I in myself and in my life will die for your sins and will remove you from the place that you are stuck in, the place that you are dying in. I will remove you and redeem you and restore you and save you. It is I who am he. And so we see this interaction with Jesus. And as a response, I believe that she places her faith and trust in Jesus and in verses 27 through 30, we see the invitation to Jesus. We see that she, she runs into town and she says in verse 29, Come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? 
and they went out of town and were coming to him. So she goes and she, she proclaims that the, the Christ is here, that the Messiah is here. Come and see. Now, if you will look in this passage of Scripture, you'll see a progression of names that this woman attributes to Jesus. It starts off in verse 9. She calls him a Jew. How come you a Jew? But in verses 11 and 15, now she says, sir. She's polite. She, she doesn't see him necessarily as a threat, but she also doesn't see him more than just uh, an individual that is talking to her. But in verse 19, she, she perceives him to be a prophet. She moves from Jew to sir to prophet. And now we see in verse 29 that she calls him the Christ. There are individuals that we will engage in when we extend the invitation that may find themselves relating to Jesus as she did in verse 9, that she perceives him to be a threat. Now, there are some that are in the progression of the Holy Spirit working upon their hearts that we see that don't see Jesus as a threat, but he's just kind of a nice guy who, who speaks. Some see him maybe in the role of a prophet. He's somebody that is one of many, and he has some truth that you can glean from, but there is not any salvation in seeing him as a prophet or a teacher only, but as the Christ, as the Messiah, as the King. And we, those that have been redeemed and restored and saved, are to proclaim him as Christ, to proclaim him as king, to proclaim him as anything other than that is to falsely proclaim who Jesus is. He is the king of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And we must take the invitation of salvation in Christ to the very ends of the earth. Luke 14, 23 says this, And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. And so in response to this, she leaves behind the water jar and, and now goes into the city because she has become a water jar herself. She now has a spring of living water welling up inside of her. And now she becomes a portable well to take the good news of Jesus Christ into the places where individuals are thirsting and dying. And for each and every one of us that have placed our faith and trust in Jesus, we have this spring of living water welling up inside of us that we are a portable well to take to those that are dying of thirst, that need the gospel, that need the truth. And we must have an invitation to all those that are around us to come and to drink from the living water of Jesus for he is the only one who can give you purpose. He's the only one that can give you meaning. He's the only one that can give you joy. He's the only one that can give you peace. He is the only one that can give you salvation and redemption and reconciliation. And so while you were stuck at the bottom of this well, lost, there is one who has left heaven and come down beside you to offer you all of those things. And if you will drink in faith from that fountain, from that well, then you will be saved. That's the good news of the gospel. Not anything in and of yourself that you do, but everything in what Jesus has done. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says this, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and to not us. It is our privilege and our purpose to point people to Jesus. It is our privilege and our purpose to point people to Jesus. We must understand that, that we must be inviting individuals to him. It is our privilege, one, 
It's not something that he owes us. It is our privilege to share the gospel with others. But it is also our purpose to point people to Jesus. And I pray that we would be found faithful to do that. In verses 31 through 38, we see that the disciples show up and we see Jesus making an investment into the disciples. We see this investment into the disciples. The, the disciples show up. The, she, she, she's still there uh, at, at, the, at the well. And they come and it's kind of awkward for a second. Nobody's saying anything. They're wondering why is she talking to this woman. And nobody's really saying anything, and all of a sudden she leaves the water jar, and she goes, and she, she runs into town. And so they're just all left together, and they're telling him, hey, eat. You know, they, they ran to McDonald's. They got, they got him to number two. You need to eat. And he says, listen, I'm not hungry because my food that I have is food that you don't know about. It's to do the will of the Father. In other words, he's focusing on things other than himself, and we would be well served to focus on individuals that are around us as well. And Jesus is going to take this opportunity as a way to teach his disciples. 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 2 says this, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Notice what he, he tells them in, in the text there in verse 35. He says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. Church, we must lift up our eyes. Far too often we allow the enemy to deceive us into living with these blinders on that is only focused in on, on, on our world, on our life, on, on what brings us comfort, on what brings uh, uh, us joy. Instead of lifting up our eyes and seeing all those that are around us, like the woman here at the well who has been outcast and ostracized, who is, who is dying at the bottom of this well, lost, that we would look up our eyes and that we would invite individuals into a relationship with Jesus. Listen, evangelism is just the people that know telling the people that don't. Oftentimes we overcomplicate it. It's just telling individuals, how much did she know? All she knew is that he had told her everything that she had done and that she, he was the one that could redeem and bring individuals out of their brokenness. That's all she knew. Think of the excuses that she could use of not extending an invitation to others. Her past, her position in life, the amount of knowledge she had, but what about the fact that she was going back into a village who oftentimes sneered at her, looked down at her, treated her poorly to the point that she had to come by herself noonday? These people don't even deserve the gospel, the way that they have treated us, the way that they have treated her and sometimes we do the same thing, don't we? We fall into the same schemes. Well, what about my past? I can't share the gospel because of my past. I can't share the gospel because of my position in life. Who's going to listen to me? I can't share the gospel. I can't invite people into a relationship with, with, with Jesus because I, I just don't know enough. I need to know more. Or maybe there are individuals that you're avoiding because you don't think that they deserve the gospel. Well, guess what? Neither did you. But Christ still came for you and for me. 
and for them as well. We must be intentional to pursue the lost like Jesus. We must start interacting with individuals. We must put down our phones and engage face-to-face with those that are around us. We must uh, invite individuals to, to Jesus, and we must invest into the disciples and those that are around us, building up leaders and pouring into them. We see that Jesus points to the fact that there are individuals that have sown and labored, and now they are reaping the benefit of what had been sown, and those that had labored before them, the, the, the prophets, uh, the patriarchs, Uh, John the Baptist, Jesus himself, the Samaritan woman, as they see this crowd of individuals that is now approaching them. Listen to me, church. We will both reap from the labors of others, and others will reap from our labors. We will both reap from the labors of others, and others will reap from our labors. We are standing on the shoulders in this church of many individuals that have gone before us to pour into the life of this church. We stand on the shoulders of individuals who, back in 1987, began the work of Emmanuel Southern Baptist and began to pour into this community and pour into the life of this church. We stand upon the shoulders of those that were at First Baptist Broken Arrow who sent out uh, a missionary team. Some of you are in this very room that left there to come to this church. We stand upon the shoulders of those individuals who, uh, when there were only 80, 90 people at this church, were serving faithfully each and every Sunday, that were faithfully inviting individuals to come and to pour into this church, that were faithfully giving of their finances to support the work of this church. We are reaping the labor of other individuals today when we are able to gather in this room, getting ready to move into another room so that we can have more room for individuals to come and that we can minister and to disciple. We stand upon their shoulders, but make no mistake about it, in 10, 20 years from now, if the Lord tarries, there will be individuals that will comprise this church that will be standing upon your shoulders and how high we have elevated this church will largely be in part to how it is that we labor today, how it is that we labor in with this church of serving and giving sacrificially, financially, and out in the community, inviting individuals to come to Jesus and sharing the gospel in our workplace and sharing the gospel in our schools and sharing the gospel at our ball fields and sharing the gospel in our neighborhoods. There will be individuals that are in our preschool right now that are in our kids' ministry right now that will reap your labors just the way that we are reaping the labors of those that have gone before us. Oh, that we would be found faithful, church. That we would be found faithful to not take for granted those that have gone before us and not lose sight of the fact that there are those that are coming behind us. In our generation, may we be found faithful. May we be like the woman at the well to rush in and share the good news of Jesus with all those that we possibly can. Lastly, I want to look at verses 39 through 42, and we see the impact upon the community. The impact upon the community of this one woman's testimony, of this one woman's faithfulness. She goes into a city that had ostracized her and outcasted her And she shares that Jesus is here, the Messiah is here, and through their interaction with him, their eternity was changed. 
What a powerful impact testimonies and the gospel have on the community around us. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have a story. And there are bits and pieces of that story that I'm sure that we want to hide and, and, and we want to set aside and we don't want those things to be exposed. But our stories are not our stories to keep to themselves. Because at the very heart of the story of anybody that has been redeemed is that Christ has redeemed you. That at one point in time, you were stuck at the bottom of this well, but Jesus came and Jesus saved. And that is your story to share with others, not about who you are per se, but about who Jesus is. And there are individuals that are stuck at the bottom of a well, and they think that there is no hope. They think there's no salvation. They think there's no redemption. And you and your story can share with them of the one who came and did for you the very thing that they need done for them. And I know some people say, well, I just don't have much of a story. I just don't have a great story. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you were once dead, and now you've been made alive in Christ Jesus. Your story is just as profound as anybody else. Oh, you may not have been in a physical prison, but you were in a spiritual prison just as anybody else was. Share your story and watch the impact it will have on this community and your neighbors and in your workplace Share your story because your story is his story. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now listen to this. What was once a place of loss became a place of love. In my sanctified mind, Scripture is... Is silent on this, but I believe that that woman stayed in that village. And in staying in that village, she would have to go to that same well to get water each day, just as she had done before. But instead of a walk of shame, as a reminder of her past, as a reminder of her sin, as a reminder of her being unwanted and outcasted, as a reminder of the whispers and the stares, as a reminder of the ostracization that she had encountered. Instead, now it was a walk of joy. It was a reminder of the one that she met at that well. The very thing that I'm sure the enemy would try to bring up into her life time after time after time on that walk by herself in the heat of the day to that well was now a walk of joy and remembrance of the one who says, you're not unwanted. I want you. It's no longer a reminder that I'm outcast. It's no, no, I'm in Christ. It's no longer a reminder of my sin. It's a reminder of my Savior and his salvation. And I believe she didn't go to that well at the heat of the day anymore. 
I believe in the cool of the morning. I don't believe that she was going to the well by herself anymore. I believe that she stood amongst those that were in that village that came to faith in Christ just as she came to faith in Christ in recognition that we all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God, all need Jesus just the same, all are lost at the bottom of that well, but yet Jesus came and Jesus rescued and Jesus redeemed and Jesus gave them living water to drink from, to transform and to change their life. And all those who come to that well and drink from it, their lives will be transformed. Their lives will be changed as well. And if she was around that well and she started to hear the whispers of those who wanted to put her back into her past, I believe that the whisper of Jesus was even louder to say, you belong to me. That is no longer who you are. You have been redeemed. You have been saved. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old is gone. The new has come. You have springs of living water that are welling up inside of you and the voice of Jesus is louder than the voice of the enemy because we have victory in Christ Jesus. This Palm Sunday, we celebrate the reality that he is the King of Kings, that he is the Lord of Lords, that he is the true Redeemer. He is the one who came alongside of us in our pit of despair and rescued us out of that, giving us the living water that has now transformed our lives to where when Satan wants to bring up whatever those wells are in your life of your past and of your sin and of your shame that Christ is there with his blood to cover all of that and to point us back to the cross to say you drank from the well of my crucifixion and now you can say it is well with my soul it is well with my soul Have you drank from that living water? Have you drank from that living water? And if you haven't today, no. There's an invitation extended to you that you no longer have to take that walk of shame. That there is a well of living water. And if you will drink from it in faith, it will change your life forever. Would you bow your heads and your hearts with me?